Hello, welcome to Head on History. I'm your host, Ali A. Alomi. I hope you are enjoying the podcast so far. If you are, don't hesitate to head over to uh, iTunes, podcast app, and add a little bit of feedback or review. I'm going to do a whole episode where I'm going to read off some of your reviews, just as a shout out and a thanks for all the people who've been supporting this podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about the ancient Greeks. Now, I'm only going to talk about them briefly, a kind of short chronology. I'm not going to focus a lot on the kind of... uh, really ancient period. I'm going to talk a little bit about the classical period and mostly focus upon the kind of clash with the Persians. Um, But if you are interested in going over Greek history, check out the History of Ancient Greece.com or the History of Ancient Greece podcast. Uh, He does a fantastic job on there. I've I've recommended him on this uh, uh, podcast before. But in fact, he just tweeted out that he's doing a whole series on the Peloponnesian War, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm barely going to touch the Peloponnesian War, so you got to check it out. He does really detailed, nuanced history. Um, phenomenal job, so check that out. It'll give you way more context than I can. I'm only interested in talking about the Greeks in the kind of broader context of world history, particularly this idea of empires and faith and how the two kind of interact with one another. So I'm going to talk about the Greeks in that context, and particularly how they come up and brush up against the Achaemenids, who we talked about in our last episode. It's kind of this longer narrative of, of the ancient world that I'm weaving. So let's start off. First, when we refer to something called the Greeks, we should be clear. The Greeks aren't actually a singular people, right? But rather a series of kind of overlapping cultures, city-states, politics, um, and even empires to some extent. We have, a, for, for example, we have kind of uh, localized or indigenous cultures that exist. For example, the Cyclidians quite early on, which or Cyclidius, which refers to a set of islands. The Minoans, which are really in, in 2200 BCE. We don't know a lot about the Minoans, but that's where we get the kind of legend of the Minotaur from. We have various reliefs and images of, of young individuals or youths leaping over bulls, doing some type of bull leaping or bull jumping. We have uh, figures of snake priestesses, so perhaps some type of fertility deity. We don't know a lot more than them. All we know is that there's really kind of localized religions, localized cultures, and localized people at the earliest moment in what we call this area that we eventually call Greece. Then at one point, an invasion starts. And this invasion is led by a group of people known as the Mycenaeans. The Mycenaeans are uh, a group of kind of warlike, chariot-riding Indo-Europeans. Now, we've talked about the chariots when we talked about Mesopotamia. It's really kind of this product of the Iron Age the rise of a particular type of imperial warfare that involves mobility and horses and arrows and javelins uh, and short swords and shields. The Mycenaeans really represent this kind of group. Now, they are depicted, this kind of unification of of, of the Greco, the Greek world, if you will, is really depicted in Homer and roughly around the 8th century BCE. His story of the Iliad and the Odyssey, these kind of oral epics that eventually get written down, is kind of the historical narrative origin story of what we eventually call 
the Greek people. The legend is really a kind of story of the Trojan War. Now, the, to understand the Trojan War, there is this larger myth there. The, the myth starts with this uh, marriage that's happening, and all the gods and goddesses are invited, except for the goddess of discord, Eris. And so Eris decides that she's going to fuck something up. How is she going to do this? She decides that she is going to get a golden apple, and on that golden apple she writes to the fairest of them all, throws this apple into the middle of this wedding, and all the gods and goddesses think it's about them, particularly the three big ones, Athena, Aphrodite, and Hera, the goddess of marriage. These three goddesses battle it out. I'm fair. No, I'm fair. And eventually, Zeus, not wanting to get involved because he's a smart guy, says, you know what? We're going to appoint a judge. And they appoint this guy named Paris. Paris is this shepherd boy that's secretly the prince of Troy. And all three offer him bribes. Hera goes, if you choose me as the fairest of them all, I will give you all the wealth in the world. Athena goes, if you choose me, I will grant you wisdom. And Aphrodite goes, if you choose me, I will give you the most beautiful woman in the world. Paris, being a young dude and kind of dumb, says, I will pick the most beautiful woman in the world. Not realizing that if he had wisdom or wealth, he could easily find a wife that loves him, right? For whatever qualities he has or whatever, right? That he would be wise enough to know the way of women perhaps or wealthy enough to know the ways of women but instead he picks the most beautiful woman in the world now as it so happened the most beautiful woman in the world was helen of troy who happened to be married to another dude named menelaus so that doesn't bode well she falls in love with paris they run away to troy and menelaus turns to his brother Agamemnon, the king of the Mycenaeans. And he goes, look, my wife's left me. I need your help. And so Agamemnon gathers the great armies of Greece and launches a war on Troy that lasts 10 years. And eventually it ends with, spoiler alert, the Trojan horse entering into Troy as a result of Odysseus's cleverness and Troy gets raised and burned to the ground. Now, a later epic that written by Virgil uh, called the Aeneas will pick up the story after the destruction of Troy, what happens to the Trojan people, they eventually become the, the Romans. Uh, the Odyssey of Homer continues with the story of Odysseus, but the Iliad tells us the story of the Greeks and the Trojans, and this is really the first time that we have a kind of narrative explanation of who the Greeks are. It is an attempt to create a kind of common culture or an attempt to record some type of common culture, common religion, common language. In reality, these are kind of a very diverse group of people. These are people who are not unified politically, but there is commonality between them. So when we refer to Greece, it's very important that we don't do so through the lens of the modern nation state or through the modern lens of nationalism that sees Greece as one unified entity. This is also kind of a fiction of Western Civ, right, that the Greeks were just one people. But in reality, they're kind of a series of people. So the Greeks are kind of a, an amorphous category that emerges after the invasion of these Indo-European Europeans known as the Mycenaeans. 
and it records the story of how these people have something in common, some shared heritage, perhaps. That is what we call the beginnings, perhaps, of Greek, of what is known as the Greek people. Now, I'm particularly interested in the classical age. This is the age of city-states, and there are two big city-states within this kind of bigger, larger cultural connection that we call the Greeks. The first is the Spartans. Now, the Spartans are made up of two groups of people, the Helos and the citizens. Citizens have full rights within Spartan society, and the Helos are generally conquered people from the local areas who are either between slaves and freemen or actually slaves. They are part of the workforce of the Spartans. They are conquered people who are really uh, in charge of the sort of agricultural traditions of Spartan. The Spartans themselves ha are a warrior people. They have a monarchy, they are a militaristic society, and they have a practice known as agoge. Agoge is uh, a training system, an education system that is directed towards teaching young Spartan boys, and they learn how to hunt and dance and fight. They are uh, taught the ways of stealth. It's a very rigorous and fierce form of training. But what it does is it creates a group identity, right? In the same way that modern the modern military does this, right? Modern militaries put people into platoons and groups, and those groups rely on one another, allied to one another. They're friends, closer to, fam to each other than family sometimes. Deep bonds, because of the experiences that they have. They form a unit. This really, the Spartans have really mastered this practice. They start the children off very young and they kind of discipline them into a fighting unit. And that's what it meant to be a Spartan citizen a Spartan warrior. There was a lot of, now it's interesting, you know, that we talk about military training, but in addition to getting military training, they also got training in things like dancing, and that's because dancing would d discipline the body, train the body, build the body up, but also because our current notions of, for example, the Spartans are really filtered through contemporary ideas of masculinity. The Spartans, for example, quite famously partnered uh, men with men, that there was a lot of uh, homoerotic relationships within Spartan society. I know that, for example, the, the movie 300 often jokes that it's the Athenians, but no, the Spartans participated uh, as well in, in these kind of traditions. And, of course, there are more famous examples of, of, of these kind of relationships between soldier men, but the Spartans were one of them. In addition to Sparta, the, the other kind of big city-state was Athens, right, which is the modern-day capital of, of Greece. And Athens was organized in a different way. It wasn't a militaristic society, but it was rooted in the notion of oikos. And oikos is kind of roughly translates to family. It can also mean kind of your extended family, but specifically refers to kind of the lineage that is passed down from male to male, from father to son. This creates the basic civic unit of the Athenian, a group of people that are related to one another through bonds of family and through passage of lineage from father to son, which also passes notions of citizenship. The Athenians had an idea that free men, particularly the upper class free men, were all citizens. And what was a citizen? A citizen was a person 
who was part of the civic society. They were involved in trade, they were involved in the economy, and they were involved in politics. That didn't leave a lot of room for women. This was not a society that was egalitarian towards women. Neither slaves nor women had a lot of rights. Women kind of fell into a couple categories. Women of the family, then there are the women known as the hetaira. The hetaira are kind of the companions that you would take on, kind of courtesians, if you will. And then there was the pornai that are the prostitutes the word pornai is literally where we get the word pornography from or porno from it's the pornai it means prostitution or prostitutes but the system of of government excluded all these women these women could you know uh, associate with men they could gain some influence but at the end of the day this was a male dominated site and deeply patriarchal in which the oikos literally meant the passage of, of lineage and citizenship from father to son in turn these people were vested with power and that these people are known as the demos it's where we get the word democracy from it's a demos and kratia or arcos the idea of the people rule or rule of the people this was really established in 594 bce by solon solon is really the guy who lays the foundations of athenian society and he tries to reform what he sees as outright greed amongst the aristocratic class the aristocratic class or the kind of wealthy landed gentry who hold all the power and all the money and as a result of this kind of exploitation and greed that was developing in, a, in Athens you started to see the rise or or a kind of overabundance of debt slavery people going into debt and then having to go into slavery to pay off that debt so Solon Solon tries to reform this and he lays down, he abolishes the debt slavery, abolishes the kind of aristocratic system, and really enforces or tries to redistribute power to the people themselves. Now again, demos, the people, is limited in its definition and linked to the oikos. So again, it's a very small notion of the people. That doesn't mean everybody had the right to vote, but it is a radical moment in which he moves away from a sort of aristocratic class or some aristocratic class and moves it towards a wider a conception of the people. In turn, this opens up democracy or the kind of government that the Athenians develop to a, a certain flaw, and that flaw is tyranny. Tyranny is basically a form of populism in which people would support a single individual who then would concentrate all that power in themselves. Now, the tyrant is neither a good thing or a bad thing in the kind of traditional Greek concept of tyrant. It's, it's value neutral. Eventually, we come to do, understand tyrants as a negative thing. But tyrants also refer to people who can kind of take over in moments of kind of crisis. Uh, and kind of resolve any issues when, uh, you know, decisions by committee or decisions by, by popular acclaim and decisions by voting would take too long. This is the case of a democracy, right? That it's, uh, things kind of get clogged up through the voting process, through disagreements. And so you would need a kind of tyrant, a single person to come in and fix things. Well, the kind of first tyrant emerges in 566, and he is the descendant of Solon, kind of relative of his perhaps a nephew or a cousin of some sort and his name who i'm i'm totally going to butcher i haven't had ancient greek i haven't done ancient greek since i don't know 
seven years, eight years. It's been eight years since I've done ancient Greek. So my Attic Greek is shite at the moment. So I apologize in advance. I'm going to try to say his name. It's Pisistratos, I think. Pisistratos is the first of the kind of tyrants. And he emerges in Athens to really establish his rule. And he gains the power really by, by invoking the support of the lower classes. These are usually people who are made money from wool or some type of really uh, low-skilled trade. This class was known as the Hyperakroi. The Hyperakroi were uh, uh, the kind of the bottom rungs of Athenian society. They were freemen, but they didn't have the same power that the aristocracy had. And so he, you know, builds his support amongst them, and he's able to consolidate his power, and he develops the first tyranny. That's two parts of the kind of Athenian government. You have one, democracy, which is really trying to be established by Solon, linked to the oikos. Then you have tyranny, which is sort of a function of democracy, a kind of attribute that comes hand in hand with democracy. But you also have the aristocracy, which predates the democracy, and that would be a ruling elite. These are landed gentry who pass down their title, wealth, and lands through the oikos, through their, their lineage from father to son, and who consolidate power through the lineages. So that's the aristocracy. Then you had an oligarchy, oligarchus. This is in which power was consolidated in a small group of people. This would be deeply related to the tyrant. Often, if a, ty if a single person doesn't come into power, a group of people might come into power. But the, the oligarchy is also part of the kind of function of democracy. Power is limited not to everybody, but to a small group of people, right? Male citizens. And of the male citizens, the people who participate in the political process. And so you, you had these different components of democracy. Solon didn't just invent democracy and that meant that's it. Everybody has the right to vote. Great. No, it also had these kind of attending components. You had the oligarchy, the aristocracy, and the tyrant. All of these were features of democracy. Some good, some bad, most of them a kind of a result of, of, of people just trying to figure it out. And that's the result of democracy. That's kind of the also part and parcel with democracy is that people are figuring it out. Now, Athens becomes uh, an important place for philosophy. And it's not the home of philosophy as most people think. In reality, much of the kind of philosophers, or at least the pre-Socratic philosophers, also known as the Ionian philosophers, probably come from what is modern-day Anatolia, that is Turkey, also the, uh, the likely the home place of what was originally Troy. So eventually, you Athens emerges as a philosophical center, but really, the, the tradition of philosophy is much broader and it goes outside of Greece. What we consider Greek philosophy isn't always just Greek. It involves what is today considered Turkey, so Anatolia. But the Greek philosophers fall into a series of categories. You have the kind of Socratic philosophers, which are the rationalists. This is uh, of whom Plato is considered the epitome. This is the idea that all knowledge is knowable through the mind, through reasoning, through the in internal process of rationalization. All knowledge is possible. And this is best uh, kind of depicted in, in uh, Plato's understanding of the ideals, the idioms, these, these concepts that exist, love, justice, etc. that can become knowable through a rigorous application of the mind. Then there is the Aristotelian school or Aristotle, um, which is empiric 
mysticism, that all knowledge is known through the five senses, right? So that you can, so you can understand the world around you through your senses. Now, this is a very rough understanding of both Plato and Aristotle. When I teach this class, this entire this is actually based off of two weeks worth of discussion. We start off with the talking about the classical age, then we talk about Greek philosophy, then we talk about Alexander the Great, and then Hellenism and, and as as the aftermath of Alexander the Great. So it's really done over kind of two weeks, but I'm trying to give it to you in one episode. So bear that in mind. This is a rough understanding of Plato and Aristotle. Now alongside Plato Plato and Aristotle, the kind of Platonic school and the Aristotelian school, there is a variety of other kind of Hellenic philosophies that we'll talk about in a little bit, but just briefly, Stoicism, Epicureanism, Cynicism, or even Skepticism, these are all kind of uh, Greek philosophies or Hellenic philosophies that emerge. But what this philosophy helps us to understand is that a broader intellectual culture emerges from the Greek world, that even if these city-states were not unified, and even if they fought amongst one another, and they weren't one people, they did have a culture of interaction, and we see that in the philosophy that's left behind. This philosophy, the art, produces an idea that there was some common culture, some common dialogue amongst these city-states, so that even if there was political division, geographic division, and we wouldn't refer to this place as Greece as we would today, there was at least some form of a Greekness, and that was best seen in philosophy. The most important kind of philosophical tradition that emerges particularly out of the Platonic school is the notion of a philosopher king, that is a ruler who is educated in philosophy and as a result is therefore enlightened and in turn enlightens his society by becoming a custodian and steward. And that's going to be at the heart of what is Alexander the Great's mission. Now, before Alexander even arrives, though, the Greeks face a series of major wars, the first of which is the uh, Greco-Persian War. There's actually two Greco-Persian Wars, but the first Greco-Persian War starts in 499 BCE. Now, the reason it starts is that Cyrus the Great had already expanded his empire right up into the edges of the Greek world, which at the time included Anatolia, parts of Anatolia. And eventually, they support some guy named Aristogorus, who leads a revolt. Uh, Aristogorus, who tries to conquer the places in Anatolia, in modern-day Turkey, which sparks a revolt known as the Ionian Revolt. Now, the Athenians get involved in the Ionian Revolt. They support the Ionian Revolt in opposition to the agent of the Persians, Aristagoras, and they eventually piss off Cyrus the Great. Now, Cyrus the Great doesn't do anything, but it does his, his eventually his successor does. Darius I, he sets fire to Lydia in retribution in retribution to the Athenian involvement in the Ionian Revolt. He starts his invasion in 492 BCE. Now, before he arrives, the Greek historian Herodotus tells us that Darius was so angry at the Athenian involvement in the Ionian Revolt and the Athenian meddling of the Persian Empire that they had done under Cyrus, that he actually charged one of his servants or slaves to whisper into his ear three times every day before dinner, Master, remember the Athenians. 
Master, remember the Athenians. Master, remember the Athenians. That's a that's another level of petty. Imagine assigning someone for the sole purposes of keeping your hate fire going. That's what Darius does. Darius is like, hell no. I am not going to let these Athenians go. And in 592, he starts his invasion. The invasion falls apart. It does not go well. The Battle of Marathon happens in 490 BCE, led by Miltiades, And Miltiades is a really brilliant commander. The Persians arrive in this place known as Marathon. Now, what they need, what the Athenians wanted was the aid of the Spartans. So they send someone to run 140 miles to Sparta. This is a guy known as Philippides. Now, this story is kind of gets muddled up. He runs all the way to Sparta, supposedly in one day, and he makes it back. The Spartans say they can't join the fight, but what they can do is pray for the Athenians because they were part of a religious festival. The Athenians are like, all right, whatever, F it. Let's do this thing. So they launch an attack on the Persians who had just arrived in Marathon, who were unable to kind of get their lines going. They were caught kind of on the shores unawares. The Greeks or the Athenians had set up their troops on the hills, and they had allowed their horses to kind of flank, their 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 cavalry to flank the Persians. What resulted was that they were able to engulf and envelop the Persian lines and absolutely crush them. Now, the legend goes is that Philippides eventually runs all the way back home home and he, he he says we have won we have won and then collapses and dies now this is a myth there's two stories here that are getting muddled up one philippides running 140 miles to sparta to get them to join the battle with the athenians and then the story of philippides running back to athens to tell them that they had won now we have no idea what actually happened here but we do know is that there was some type of message that had happened and probably that uh this got muddled up so we're not clear what happened did philippides run to sparta probably not did philippides run to Athens, we don't know, but it makes for a good legend. It makes for a good story. You know, he ran back to to Athens and yelled, Neneke Kamen, we won, we were victorious. Who knows? Another legend that's associated with the Battle of Marathon is that when when Philippides went to Sparta, the religious festival that the Spartans were partaking in and therefore couldn't couldn't join the battle was a religious festival dedicated to the god Pan, who is the god of the woods. He's a he's a satyr, a goat god half goat half man he is a, a a god of the woods and darkness and even of a fear the kind of fear you have when you enter into the dark forest right and so he asks why do the athenians not you know worship pan and philippides promises that he would so in turn what does the spartans the spartan prayers and what does pan do he puts panic into the heart of the uh, Persians, and that's what causes them to, to, to kind of scatter. That's where we get the word panic from. It's from Pan, the fear that he's able to, uh, you know, bring about. Anyways, the battle is a rout, and the Persians are defeated, and Darius never again launches an attack on Greece, but he swears that he will. And the reason he wants to is because he's vengeful. Remember, he's, been, you know, remember the Athenians. He didn't get his justice he didn't get his revenge but he's unable to because there's some battle other wars that come up mostly in, in egypt and other places and so he in his lifetime he never 
launches another attack. But his son Xerxes does. In 480 BCE, he launches his own attack. And the first attack, the first wave, is at Thermopylae, this place known as the Hot Gates, um, where it's happening at the same time as Artemisium. So there's a naval battle called Artemisium that's happening, and a land battle at Thermopylae. Now, you've probably heard of the Battle of Thermopylae from the story of uh, 300, the movie. It's a crap movie filled with some of the worst Orientalist tropes. I mean, that la you know, the Persians, the, the land of mysticism and tyranny. Oh God. That's straight up 19th century Orientalism stuff. It's bad, really bad. Um, but also it doesn't get the, the story quite accurately. It is true that Leonidas leads his Spartans in battle at Thermopylae to hold off the Persians. But he actually has 7,000, roughly about, we think, 7,000. Of which only 300 Spartans remain at the end when he set, when everyone else retreats. So what happens is of the 7,000, most of them are forced to retreat from the Persians after holding off for a few days. Anywhere from 3 to 5, it's believed. 300 Spartans remain, along with 700 Thespians, we should point out. They all remain to hold off the Persians while everyone else is able to retreat from Thermopylae. They get killed to a man. So that's what happens. It's not a big route for the Persians. The Persians are eventually able to destroy them. The Persians also didn't have like a million soldiers. They probably had about 100,000. They still overwhelmingly, uh, you know, outnumbered the, the Spartans and the Greek forces. But it's not the same battle that we see in the movie 300. Far more complicated. At the same time, once the people are able to retreat and the 300 Spartans are killed, this defeat reaches the, the ears of Themistocles, who is leading the naval battle. And so he retreats from Artemisium. And he asks at one point the Oracle of Delphi, according to legend, how are we going to be able to defeat the Persians? And he goes, look, Athens will burn. The only thing that can save you all is a wall of wood. And what happens? Well, the Athenians do lose their city. After they retreat from Artemisium and Thermopylae, the Persians are able to press forward and they set Athens to the torch. They burn Athens to the ground. But they then launch a naval attack at the Battle of Salamis. This is a place called Salamis. And the Straits of Salamis. And it turns out that the wall of wood that the oracle was talking about, reputedly talking about, again, this is part myth, part legend, part history, as all good history is, I should say. Um, part of this, the, the turns out that the kind of message of the oracle referred to ships. Because it's at the Battle of Salamis that they're able to defeat Xerxes. Now, what ends up happening is Xerxes has a large naval force. And the Straits of Salamis are very thin. And the Greeks were able, under Themistocles, to trick the Persians into rushing in in order to block the Strait of Salamis. And by trying to block the Strait of Salamis, they lined up very nicely so that the Greeks could create a single line and rush them. This caused all sorts of chaos. They were unable to navigate. The, the Persians, as you say, they were unable to navigate. And it utterly destroyed Xerxes' army. That was the end of the Persian invasion, the second Greco-Persian invasion, and the end of the Greco-Persian wars. But that had consequences, and one of the consequences, some believe, is Alexander the Great, that perhaps the desire to conquer Persia that Philip of Macedon and Alexander had was a sort of result of the historical memory 
of these wars. As a young Macedonian, he would have been raised on these stories. He would have been raised on this battle, knowing the stories of this battle. And perhaps in the same way that Darius was filled with revenge, there was a sense of historical vengeance. There is time between Alexander the Great and the Greco-Persian War, and this is the era of the Dillian League, which is really a sort of hegemony that force, a naval and military hegemony that uh, really is introduced as a result of the end of the Greco-Persian War, a unification, an attempted unification of the Greek city-states under a first Athenian hegemony in 440, uh, 448 to 430 BCE, and then after a war with Sparta itself, known as the Peloponnesian War, 431 to 404, a Spartan hegemony from 404 to 371 BCE. I'm not going to talk a lot about the the Peloponnesian War or the Delian League. Uh, again, you could check out uh, the the podcast that I that I mentioned, the History of Ancient Greece podcast, which I think does a will do a far better job than I do talking about this history. But it is important to note that there is this moment in which two hegemonies emerged, the Athenian and the Spartan. And it is perhaps in response to those, as well as the historical memory of the Greco-Persian War, that the Hellenic Empire emerges. The Hellenic Empire starts with Philip II of Macedon from 359 to 336. It is an attempt to really unify all of Greece under a single imperial force. And Macedon, and Philip of Macedon has this, this dream of a... Um, you know, pan-Hellenic society in which the Greeks are not divided into city-states but unified into one single military power. His son, Alexander, known as Alexander the Great from 356 to 323, is the one who manages to accomplish his father's dream. He is considered the most remarkable remarkable emperor of the ancient world. Why? Because he does the unthinkable. He creates the single largest land empire to date. We've talked about the Assyrians as being the first real empire. We've talked about the Persians as the first universal empire. But here we have the first true massive empire. I mean, this stretches from the Mediterranean to North Africa, through Asia Minor, through the Middle East, or what would we call the Near East, to all the way to South Asia. It is a vast territory. And in that regards, he is quite remarkable. In the other instance, his empire doesn't last very long, and so in some regards, he is a bit unremarkable, or he's a bit overrated in that sense. Yes, he is the first to unify all these, and nothing but respect in that regards, we should note. He is a great, it's a, it's a phenomenal achievement, we should note this phenomenal achievement. But at the same time, Alexander the Great, you know, it doesn't last very long. He's also quite a brutal dictator, he's a brutal warlord. So the sort of valorization of Alexander the Great is all, all kind of stuff that happens after after his death. But he does accomplish great things. At one point, he goes to Siwa. This is this place where there's an oracle. And the oracle of Siwa tells him that you are the son of Amun Zeus. Now, why is this significant? Amun is an Egyptian god. Zeus is a Greek god. Because this represents more than anything the legacy of Alexander the Great. And that is Hellenism. 
Hellenism or the Pan-Hellenic project is really Greek culture fused with the local. And we often assume that Hellenism just means Greek. That's not true. There is a lot of Anatolian, Macedonian influences and even some Indian and Egyptian influences. Hellenism is Greek culture as it interacts with local culture. That dialogic process is what produces Hellenism. Alexandria is a perfect example of this. He conquers North Africa and Egypt and he establishes this Greco-Egyptian city. Alexandria and the Greco-Egyptian city produces Greco-Egyptian gods like Amon-Zeus, a syncretic fusion of cultures. This, to some extent, is Alexander the Great's greatest legacy, his ability to spread Greek ideas throughout the region, but is dynamic enough to also adapt some of the local customs. This dialogic process is what makes Hellenism enduring, so that when Alexander the Great dies, Hellenism doesn't disappear, but continues on after him. We even see fusions with Buddhism, Greco-Buddhism, and Bactria, the modern-day, what should be modern-day kind of India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. Greco-Buddhist fusion is kind of this beautiful moment. And if you go to Afghanistan, you will still find Greek columns, Greek coins, and you will find Greco-Buddhist deities. You know, for example, uh, there is a even Greek deities. Heracles in his lion skin was one of the protector deities in the city of Bactria. We know that the certain Buddhist depictions have Greek influences on them, and the the influences don't go one way. It's not just the Greeks influencing. Like I said, this is a dialogic process. Piero, one of the Greek philosophers that go with Alexander, eventually you know, founds this thing known as Pyrrhonism, which is the first real European or Western school of skepticism, and that is a result of his interaction with the Buddhists. So it's Buddhist influence on Greek philosophy, not just Greek philosophy influencing the uh, Buddhists. It's both ways, and that really is the heart of Hellenism. Alexander the Great's conquest isn't just a military expansion. He brings with him philosophers. And in this way, he represents the philosopher king. He is trained in the Aristotelian school. His tutor is Aristotle from 15 and on. And he sees himself as an enlightened ruler, trained in the ways of philosophy, of rigorous thinking, enlightened, and therefore trying to bring enlightenment to the world. If the Persians were the first to have some form of universal kingship. The idea that there is one king who has been granted dominion over all the world by the gods themselves, then Alexander the Great is the first to truly believe in a sort of proselytizing kingship, a king who will bring enlightenment to the world. Why should he rule? Because he is an enlightened king. He is a philosopher king who will bring truth to the world. And we're going to see that this Hellenic idea of spreading a sort of superior intellectual tradition throughout the world is going to become the heart and parcel of things like Christianity and Islam. Both of them adopt that same proselytizing message. We have a truth that we are going to spread through the world. Now, that's not to say that, say, Muhammad knew about Alexander the Great and he tried to mirror himself after it. No, but rather that the culture the language, the cultural language in eventually in antiquity is a, still has remnants of Hellenism, still has remnants of this idea that there may there is something called a superior ideology or a superior philosophy that then can be spread through the world. The Romans have a similar concept. It all starts really with Alexander the Great. He spreads this all out. Now, his victories are numerous. He has a lot of them, but the three big ones are the battles of Granacus, Issus, and Gaugamela. And Gaugamela 
Lamella in 330 BCE is where he finally defeats Darius III, sends him fleeing, and eventually Darius III is killed. This is the end of the Achaemenid Empire that we talked about in our last episode. He absorbs the Achaemenid Empire, fuses it with the Greek world, with the Egyptian world, with the Levant, and uh, all the way into India. In fact, he goes quite far into India until his soldiers ask for him asked to return. He ends up dying in 323 BCE in Babylon, the former home of the Achaemenid Empire uh, and the old ancient empires. Uh, there's a lot of kind of different accounts of his death. Plutarch's account says that, you know, 14 days before his death, Alexander was entertaining this kind of admiral guy, this military commander, and he spent the, that entire night and day drinking with Midias, and as a result, he developed a fever and he was made sick very sick until he died. There's another account by, by Diodorus, these two very famous historians that recount that Alexander was actually really, you know, and covered, it was really consumed with pain after he was downing a large bowl of unmixed wine. Unmixed, most wine was mixed at the time. There's water in it. Sometimes there's honey in it, all sorts of things. But he downs this 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 big bowl of unmixed wine, and then for eleven days he was weak, and eventually, uh, you know, he dies in agony. Both of these uh, accounts point to something like poisoning of some sort. And indeed, the ancient world was filled with poisoning. But there's also strong evidence that Alexander probably just got sick and he wasn't poisoned. The argument being that it took so long for him to die, that had it been poisoned, he would have died much earlier than that, that he was struck with this illness that lasted several days. It's possible he wasn't poisoned. We don't know. Maybe he was poisoned, maybe he wasn't. But within a short period after his death, his empire is split up. You have Cassander in uh, Macedonia, Lysander, in Asia Minor, Ptolemy in Egypt, Seleucus in Mesopotamia, and South Asia. And while these empires are yeah, politically divided with between these rulers, some last a lot longer than others. Cassander's, for example, doesn't last very long, but the Ptolemies end up spawning a dozen Cleopatras and Ptolemies that go all the way down to uh, ancient Rome. So for several hundred years, uh, to the coming of uh, Augustus himself, uh, in the Seleucids continue on until the coming of Rome as, as well. The Seleucids end up ruling in the Levant and have a huge influence on the development of rabbinic Judaism, really the, the kind of their introduction of Hellenism. So we're going to talk further about Hellenism when we talk about Judaism and Christianity because both religions interact with Hellenism. But I wanted to set the stage here with this Greek empire, this Hellenic empire, give you a brief outline of the history of Greece, but really focus in on this idea of the philosopher king, a king who has a sort of message to send to the world, an enlightenment, a truth that he is going to spread. This is what justifies his kingship, very in some ways related to the, the, the kind of universal kingship of the Persian Empire, of the Achaemenid Empire, but different. This is the philosopher king, the one who will bring truth, not just ordained by the gods, but he will bring truth, and he brings truth with him in the form of philosophers who come with him, of perhaps even of religious elite. We're going to talk about this kind of structure and idea when we talk about the Romans, when we talk about the uh, uh, Christians, and we're going to continue to talk about it, particularly because it's also part of the backdrop of Islam, Hellenism is. So hopefully this was an interesting episode for you. 
a really brief introduction of Hellenism. Again, check out uh, the History of Ancient Greek podcast for a much deeper exploration of the Greek world and Greek history. We're going to revisit Hellenism when we talk about Christianity and Judaism. Uh, if you found this interesting, don't hesitate to head over to uh, iTunes and give us a review. Leave five stars and feedback. I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. You can also tweet me at A-A-O-L-O-M-I or follow me on Instagram at A-A-O-L-O-M-I or use the hashtag head on history. Anyway, that's all for today. Thank you and stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. Thank you.